Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, here's a question. What's in your retirement plan now? Our Paycheck to Paycheck series examines how the pandemic how the pandemic has been disrupting retirement plans, especially for women. Also, Opening Doors to Recovery. It's a new program out of Rockdale County, and it hopes to reduce repeated psychiatric hospitalizations for those formerly incarcerated. Community conversations that matter. That's all ahead. But first this. Some residents of Fulton County are speaking out against a possible plan to change the Oak Hill Child, Adolescent, and Family Center in South Fulton to a a mental health treatment center. During today's Fulton County Commission board meeting, Ebony Section told the commission while mental health services are needed, changing the center would also create a setback for the community. I needed this center when I had my first baby. I lost my mom to COVID and every one of those ladies in there were my aunties, were my grandmas, were my grannies that helped me with my baby. I got free diapers, I got formula, I got wig support. So I really ask you all, if we need mental health services, but bring some providers that look like us, bring some providers that can help us with postpartum depression, bring some therapists that can help us with anxiety, bring some therapists that can help us with marijuana usage, smoking cessation, bring some support groups. But this mental health center is not a great fit for Oak Hill. We reached out to Fulton County regarding future plans for the Oak Hill Family Center, and we expect an update this week. In other news, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens has now passed the ceremonial first 100 days on the job. During this time, Mayor Dickens faced a push, as you know, from some in the Buckhead neighborhood to break away from the city over growing concerns about crime and affordability. We'll hear more from WABE's politics reporter, Sam Greenglass. Andre Dickens has been a constant presence at opening ceremonies, community events, even filling potholes. He's also made overtures across the street from City Hall to Republicans in the state capitol. Dickens' predecessor had a frosty relationship with the state's Republican power brokers. Dickens' relationship building may have helped stave off Buckhead cityhood, for now at least. Despite Dickens' efforts to curb crime, launching a new nightlife division and a new police station in Buckhead, homicides are still up. Affordable housing also remains an ongoing challenge. Dickens has promised to preserve or build 20,000 units over the next eight years. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. And there will not be an increase in tuition and fees at 25 of Georgia's 26 public colleges and universities. They'll remain flat for the upcoming academic year. That's because the State Board of Regents voted to keep both undergraduate and graduate tuition rates at the same level for a third consecutive year. The board also eliminated a mandatory fee that's been in place for more than a decade. This will save students between $170 and $544 a semester, depending on the institution. As for the loan institution that will see a tuition increase, it's Middle Georgia State University. The Board of Regents say it's part of a three-year plan to align the Macon School with other universities in the same academic sector. National civil rights leaders say there is an ongoing effort to attack voting rights happening across the country, especially here in Georgia, and that is disproportionately disproportionately impacting black Americans. As Emily Wu Pearson reports, this week there was a gathering of leaders at Clark Atlanta University where voting rights was one of several points highlighted in that annual State of a Black America report issued by the National Urban League. Usually, the National Urban League releases the annual State of Black America report in Washington, D.C. But this year's report looks at how many new voting laws across the country disenfranchise black voters. So national leaders convened in Atlanta. Mark H. Morial is the president of the National Urban League. Georgia has become ground zero for voter suppression. 
a number of things have in effect shook the foundations of old Georgia politics. The report detailed how Black Americans fare in the labor market, the economy, housing, health, and education. But Morial says getting things done on those fronts starts with being able to vote for representatives who will advocate for equality. A poll in the report shows that Black Americans do not feel like politicians represent their needs and that a higher percent of Black voters have had difficulties voting in the first place. Here's Morial again. We have never seen anything like this, not even in the dark days of the 50s and 60s, not even in the post-Civil War era. This is an well-orchestrated assault to try to shift power. Morial says to combat disenfranchisement, registering voters and educating people about their voting rights is the first place to start. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. And finally, it was a good first outing for Brave starting pitcher Bryce Elder in his major league debut against the Washington Nationals Tuesday in Truist Park. There it is, first major league strikeout. He freezes Yadiel Hernandez and all in all, Real good work. Two hits after three pitches, but a double play and strikeout limits Washington to one first inning run here in Atlanta. Of course, it did help that Elder was supported by 16 runs scored in the win against the Washington Nationals, including Ozzie Albies with his first home run of the season. Uh, Ozzie hits one deep to left, making another homer into the Hank Aaron Terrace. And by the way, I know some of you may not care, but my beloved St. Louis Cardinals are playing well as well in the season. I'm just letting y'all know this is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmond.edu. That's R I C H M O N T.edu. And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE. In Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. This may not be a surprise to you, but according to the latest data from the U.S. Census Bureau's Survey of Income and Program Participation, there is a retirement savings gap between men and women. And the data suggests that 50% of women ages 55 to 66 have no personal retirement savings compared to 47% of men. In addition, women who are saving for retirement aren't saving as much as men. And we also know that 22% of women have $100,000 or more in their personal retirement savings compared to that 30% of men. Now, for today's Paycheck to Paycheck segment, we're going to turn our attention to how the pandemic has impacted women's ability to save for retirement. And joining me now is Catherine Collison. She is the CEO and president of Transamerica Institute and is uh, its operating division, Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies. And I tell you, she's been making all of the, I've seen Catherine everywhere on all the news outlets, so why not get her? Catherine, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, I, I looked into my, because I work for a nonprofit, so I looked at my 403B. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I don't need to ask how it's going. <laughs> uh, well, it's going. <laughs> Which direction is going? I don't know. But, you know, Catherine, there's so much to talk about here. and We're going to get into retirement. But those numbers aren't lost on you. Those statistics that I read coming into, this is nothing new. We've talked about this years ago, that for women uh, trying to save for retirement, it just doesn't match up to our male counterparts here. It is. And this is a longstanding issue. And I'm going to share a little bit of history with you. And then let's look at the present and what we can do going forward. So I want to give you, we'll add some factoids to our listeners, but 50 years of progress of women. Women have made tremendous strides in terms of educational attainment and career opportunities that my mother's and grandmother's generations would have never even dreamed of. Yet there's this, there still continues to be a persistent retirement gap. Mm -hmm. And let me help illustrate uh, how the gap is slowly closing, but 
all the work that we need to do. So we're going to look back to the year 1970. In the year 1970, just 8.2% of women age 25 and older had a college degree or more. Okay. That has increased to 38.3% in 2020. Um, and it's even eclipsed that of men who came in at 36.7%. Now I want to stop you there because someone is saying, okay, Catherine, are you going to tell me this is important because that means women, since then women have been getting maybe better opportunities and better jobs in order to save. Is that where you're going? That's exactly where I'm going. And with this extraordinary increase in level of education, the gender pay gap, which is well known, has it's closing, but not the way we would want it to close given all this education. So in, in 1970, the gender pay gap was 60%. In 2020, it was 83%, meaning that women in the year 2020 made 83 cents on the, the man mm-hmm. dollar. Let's so for I want to back up for, for folks that say it may not understand why this is important in the correlation because also within that within the subpopulations of we have women broad, what do you know? What has research shown us about specific populations, women of color, black women, Hispanic women? Do we have data on that in terms of the progress or the slow progress? Well, what I can tell you is uh, all women have made progress um, in terms of educational attainment and pay gap. However, the the gap is still greater among women of color than it is for white women. Um, so we have to work even clo- uh, even harder on our diversity, equity, big underscore equity and inclusion to help bridge that accelerate the bridging of that gap. You all now have a study that you're looking at, which makes sense how and you called it life in the COVID-19 pandemic, women's health fin- finances and retirement outlook. I Is there good news here or is there, if, if this is an executive summary sort of conversation, is there some good news? Should we start there first or do we start with the bad news? Uh, let's start with the glimmers of hope. Okay. Which we'll call good news. <laughs> and I'm expanding the scope of good news to glimmers of hope. And that is our survey. And this is an important caveat. Our survey was of employed women at the time of the survey. So women employed by for-profit companies. It does not include responses from women who may have dropped out of the workforce, which we've seen lots of headlines on. The good news is they are keeping the faith. They're still saving for retirement. Um, More than three in four, 77% say they are saving for retirement, which contextually is phenomenal given the immediate financial needs that they're facing, the uh, urgent needs that have arisen as a result of the pandemic, um, the immediate priorities. It's really quite extraordinary that they're keeping their eye on the long term. Uh, and continuing to save. So I th- uh, it's a glimmer of hope, and, and yes, it's good news. Okay, that's a glimmer of hope, but there are some, some specific optics and there's some specific reasons why now this survey might have also indicated that there were reasons that disrupted the ability for women to save for retirement. And I'll let you take it from here. Yes, and um, this has happened in the pandemic even more so, but the trend has been longstanding. And that is, in addition to the gender pay gap, which we've talked about, women are more likely to take time out of the workforce for parenting and caregiving. This was especially, has been especially the case during the pandemic. And these times out of the workforce can be quite costly. Not only is a woman taking time out, she's not earning income, she doesn't have access to employer benefits, and she's not building towards her social security earnings history. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's doing invaluable work, but it's not showing up in her short-term paycheck and her long-term retirement savings. Mm -hmm. That that makes sense. And also, too, if there was an employee match, keep in mind, not getting that either. Uh, If you're not participating in the plan, you're not getting the match. And you all do surveys like this all the time, but for our listeners not familiar with, with your institute here, are you all able then, which I guess we're going to get into, offer 
resources? Do you reach out to those product or service providers to see what they're offering then for specific populations? In this instance, we're talking about women. Do you all do that as well? When you, when you have a survey, what's the next action after you get the findings from a survey like this? Yes. Transamerica Institute is a nonprofit organization. We're a private foundation that gets its funding from Transamerica Corporation, the large financial services company. However, we are a nonprofit and we have a, a charitable mission of education, doing research and outreach. So when we do these surveys, um, one of the most important things for us to do is get the word out to help educate the public, help educate employers, help educate policymakers mm -hmm. about the risks faced among vulnerable populations. And women may be half of the U.S. population, but we are vulnerable. <laughs> um, and a big part of it is you know, talking with people like you, helping get the word out and uh, not leaving people with just a bunch of factoids, mm -hmm. but empowering action steps. And what we see in the research, there are a lot of things that people can be doing that haven't started, just haven't started doing yet. Well, there are things let's that talk about employers that. can be doing. Let, let's talk about that. And I just got an email from a listener that says, Rose, you're young, be aggressive. Now, <laughs> that's easier said than done, you know, in terms of, you know, look, I'll be very trans uh, transparent. I would love to be able to say, you know what? I can take 10% of my income and set it aside for retirement. I have a large family. That ain't happening, <laughs> you know, um, because the, there may be a need for now. You know, the listeners know that these last two years, I, I had a brother and I lost a brother and a sister, mm. which meant helping the family with expenses. You have to, you know, you have to dip, dip into that. That retirement plan, sometimes these things happen. So how do you get back on track? Do I go to HR and say, hey, take out 10% because that ain't going to happen either because I need that 10%. What are you offering to to women to start doing? Slow and, and, and slow steps, you know, because everybody oh, can't do it. Well, a word of wisdom is that to avoid getting overwhelmed before you even get started, because in the long run, that can be counterproductive. And to think of things long-term in a way, we know that life gets in the way. Mm -hmm. um, but what we also know is it's never too soon or too late to start saving. And saving on a consistent basis, just being in the habit of saving can help lead to better outcomes. And life is such that sometimes we're in a position to save more than others. Mm -hmm. And to think of it that way, that we can just do our best. Okay, and but sometimes we can save a lot, and sometimes we may have to pull back and not save. So, sounds like Catherine, you're saying let's let's switch our mindset. That even if it's not a lot, if it's a little, every little bit helps. You want, particularly we're talking about women, to start in any way possible to start saving as 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 much as they can. Is that what you're saying? Start with the mindset that you can do this. It's never too late. Is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. Um, a mindset and confidence in the possibilities. Uh, and that's another thing that we see in the, the survey findings. Many women simply are not confident about their retirement the, their retirement prospects. And, and sometimes if you look at the savings rates, um, that confident, that lack of confidence may be well-founded. But if we change our mindsets and can focus on that, what we can do, knowing that every little bit can have an important impact over the, the long term, a career that can last uh, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and that as we get started, every step, every step we take uh, is a step in the right direction. There is a bullet point you all have here that I wanted to make sure we talked about, which was a level of understanding about Social Security benefits. Because, you know, as we get older, and that's everyone, we start to look at, okay, what will our Social Security benefits be enough? And everyone I talk to says probably not. But with this, what are you hoping that people understand about their Social Security benefits? Should we at what age should we start looking at our Social Security benefits? Because you can you can go online and you can find out a history of all your 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 income as long as you've been alive and how much was taken out and it gives you an estimate if you plan to retire I think at was it sixty five or and then on up to seventy two correct 
Yes. And you absolutely. And a lot of people have not, women and men have not yet taken the step of getting their social security earnings history through social security. Uh, Don't trust any third parties calling you or spamming you because they're probably, yeah, there's a lot of bad actors out there. But if you go to the social security website, you can set up an account and log in and look at your earnings history and your expected levels of benefits. And the importance of learning this information is multifaceted. One is from a basic planning perspective, how knowing how much you you can expect to receive. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, another factoid for you in 2020, the average social security benefit for retired women workers was $1,378 a month. That is not a lot. No. And knowing what your own personal benefits are going to be can help you plan accordingly in terms of not only saving more, but also looking at maybe extending your time in the workforce (sighs) um, because that can help augment and delay collecting social security benefits. Another, another big decision factor. Mm -hmm. Oh, (laughs) it's just, I understand, you know, I have some emails folks saying, I don't want to work till I'm 72 because I have to. And I understand that. I have a listener just email me that says, Rose, ask your guest, does she suggest opening up a different, a separate retirement plan than the one, my employer offers now i know that you're not in the business of giving advice but that it could be helpful if someone can afford it yeah if somebody can afford it and it's important to look at your overall financial situation your your savings your short-term and long-term savings as well as paying off any debts that you may have and another important thing is having emergency savings on hand as it relates to retirement savings specifically Uh, If you're offered a plan, um, it's important to participate in the plan, at least up to the matching contribution and more if you can afford to do so. The IRS has limits, so Mm -hmm. you can max out. If you max out your 401k, you can't necessarily go open an IRA because the overall there's limits. But Mm -hmm. what you can do is save outside of work and build savings in 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 bank accounts and brokerage accounts. and uh, a thing that we also see women and miss, men missing out on is thinking through their asset allocation, meaning how their savings are in invested and if they're in alignment with their risk profile and years to retirement. Let me ask you this, Catherine. What's the message in all of this for, let's say, women who are under the age of, uh, let's say, 40 here, who may not be thinking about retirement right now, but folks like me who are <laughs> at some point, What's the message or the lesson now for them in, in learning about what we're dealing with? Younger women have so much to learn from and benefit from the experience of their older counterparts. And the first thing you touch on is the sooner you start saving, the more time you have for your savings to grow before you reach retirement age. So those, if you can start in your 20s, you can benefit from the compounding of those investments for a career that lasts at least, say, 20, 30, or even 40 years, depending on, on um, your financial situation and your work preferences. The longer you wait to start saving, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be more difficult to catch up. So If you're young, get started as soon as possible. And as we touched on, save as much as as you can, but Mm -hmm. be kind to yourself, knowing that sometimes you're gonna be able to save more than others. And at the same time, to put some money aside for emergencies, because we never know when life's gonna throw us a curveball. And we have been having that conversation so many times on this program. You know, you mentioned, Catherine, earlier about you hope that policymakers and and perhaps state lawmakers and anybody else that's in a position, they should read this report that you all put out. But through your lens, you know, what can what what can policymakers do? You know, I mean, because retirement is, is such a complex sort of quality of life issue. And you think about that should be based on an individual. Now, of course, for folks that work for the state here in Georgia, they would love for maybe Georgia to have some program for its state employees. Is that kind of what your hope is when you have a report like this and you say, we hope policymakers read this? Yes. 
Yes, indeed. And let me give you an a couple of examples of things that policymakers can do. One is help ensure that everyone in the workforce has access to retirement benefits, that has the ability to save for retirement in the workplace. Our research finds a structural issue. Part-time workers are much less likely to be offered benefits mm -hmm. than full-time workers. Women are more likely than men to work part-time. Therefore, even if a woman is in the workforce, if she's working part-time, she's less likely to have access to those important employer-sponsored benefits. So the extent to which policymakers can help level that playing field so that everyone has the ability to participate in the workforce can really help women in women's situations. And of course, the key to all of this, and someone just pointed out on Twitter, and I totally agree, and I think that you do as well, is that, look, at the end of the day, no savings can make up for lost earnings if we aren't being paid, one, what we should be compensated for at a, at a fair rate. Uh, we could have another conversation about minimum wage, and I've had that conversation. But at the end of the day, it is about income. And even here in the Atlanta area, and you may know this, Catherine, you know, Atlanta has one of the highest income inequality gaps in the nation. So at the end of the day, it is about pay folks <laughs> what they should be paid and probably pay them more. It is about what you're earning. And if you are a low-wage earner, it is hard to save. And as another expert told me on this program, it is hard to save when you are in debt. So there are a lot of optics there. And you know that. Yes. Yes. And that leads to another policy recommendation. And one of the things that is a drag on women's earnings and women's pay is the high cost of taking time out of the workforce. Mm -hmm. If a woman drops out of the workforce, say for a few years, it's really hard to jump back in. And uh, our parents, or at least my parents, I think everybody's parents always taught you, your first job is your hardest to get because it's a lot easier to find a job if you already have a job. It's even harder to find a job if you have been out of the workforce for a while. Um, and to try to jump back in at the same level of pay is virtually impossible. Mm -hmm. So uh, a couple of things that we can do is help help educate, help inform a national dialogue so that if a woman, and these are really big, important, and meaningful personal life choices, but maybe there's a way women can dial back their their work schedules so that they don't have to quit a job to manage work-life balance if it's raising a child or caring for an aging parent. Um, maybe there's ways to accomplish that. And, you know, employers, uh, hopefully employers will step, step up, but policy incentives may encourage their stepping up to do that and help people manage work-life balance so that they don't have to make short-term decisions uh, even though they are the most important life decisions they may ever make, um, but they can make decisions that aren't going to have really serious negative long-term consequences. And that seems the like other the key. Thing, that seems very key. Go ahead. I'll let you finish. Oh, and one other thing policymakers can do is more to support caregivers. Our population is aging, uh, but not necessarily healthfully. And more and more older individuals are going to need caregiver support and they're going to lean on their adult children. And often that's going to be the adult daughter who may be further compromising her employment, her income, her future retirement to care for a loved one. And anything that policymakers can do to support caregivers can go a long way towards helping women. And I think that is at the core of all of our conversation. Good conversation. Catherine Collison, the CEO and president of Transamerica Institute. And we've been talking about its operating division of Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies. And we'll have a link to the findings of that survey, Life in the COVID-19 Pandemic, Women's Health, Finances, and Retirement Outlook for the 21st Annual Transamerica Retirement, Retirement Survey of Workers. We'll have a link to that. Catherine, good conversation. Thank you so much. We know there are no there's no there's no easy answer to all of this, but uh, hopefully those policymakers that you mentioned 
we'll do something about it. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. Closer Look continues now. Later today, two notable authors will be in a virtual conversation sponsored by Karis Bookstore in the Auburn Avenue Research Library. It is Alice Walker and Pearl Clegg. And of course, you know, Pearl often joins Lois Wrights on City Lights. Well, the two will chat about Walker's new book just out this week called Gathering Blossoms Under Fire, the journals of Alice Walker, edited by Valerie Boyd, who recently passed away. And earlier in the week, I had a conversation with Alice Walker about publishing her journals. Here's an excerpt. This is 500 pages of entries from 60-plus journals, which you place in the loving care of our mutual friend and your fellow creative, the late Valerie Boyd. This was in 2007 when you gave her these journals. Had you always considered publishing your journals? Well, I think so, because I was under the influence of Anais Nin, who was a great journalist uh, herself, a diarist. And I learned how much you can learn from keeping a journal about yourself and how liberating it can be, you know, to discover you don't have to keep repeating your old mistakes because you can go back and recognize them. You still journal? Oh, yes. I love it. I think it's wonderful. How much independence did Valerie have in in editing this? You gave her these journals. You said, have at it. Did you select some that you did not want to be published? She took the whole thing, and together we decided that, you know, nobody wanted to read a thousand-page book, and it was too heavy to carry around. Uh, so together we made some decisions, but I trusted her completely. She was, she was just entirely trustworthy, and I'm very happy with what she chose, you know, finally, and how it hangs together, and I just wish she were here with us to enjoy it. We were going to be you know, strolling down the yellow brick road together. But, you know, it's not happening. She told me as she was working on this, she would never reveal too much, but she would just say, make sure you get me and Alice on when this comes out. And I would say, of course. And I would, <laughs> being a journalist, Miss Walker, I would say, can you tell me? She's like, no, I can't tell you that, Rose. Uh-huh. <laughs> you you yeah. know me. But I want to talk about writing for a moment because, and I shared this in an interview that I did with someone about Valerie and what she would tell me about writing that Rose, you have to be willing, how vulnerable do you want to be in all of this? Mm. And Mm. vulnerability in our journals reveals all of that. Mm -hmm. And I hope this isn't a silly question. Did you have any concerns about your vulnerability that folks would see in these journals? Of course, people always see your vulnerabilities, whether you have them or not. That's what you have to understand about folks. So you might as well just live your life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But I it's, mean, it's hard, Miss Walker, when you want to put, it's okay because when you're journaling, you're, you're writing to yourself. You know that, right? Mm-hmm. And so for some of us, maybe it's hard. To no, even... no, no. Of course it's hard. But, but you know, what, that's what life is, is. It's hard and then you get over it. But the thing to remember is that in a way there's only one self. And that's the, the, the whole self of everyone. I mean, we're not that different. We think we are, but in so many ways, we're not. That is why it's possible to teach people things because you're teaching out of yourself and it's going into what seems like a completely different self, but obviously it's not because they understand, right? Mm-hmm. And that is what will happen with this journal. People will see so much of themselves but they'll forget about me. I mean, you know, it'll, it'll be more like, oh, here is a mirror I can use. As I'm reading the book and and I'm reading from 20-something-year-old Alice Walker, and you're right, there are some mirrored reflections I could see. And then there were some that I have to keep in mind because of that time, that space where you were. And mm-hmm. and then as I'm reading on, and, I, and to be fair, I'm, I haven't finished a book. I don't want to be one of those journalists that claim they read the whole book and they didn't. But then I'm getting to, I'm up to the 1980s right now. What I want listeners to understand, too, is early in the book, Valerie tells the reader that throughout the years, Alice Walker would use her journals as a place to write first drafts of poems, short stories, and parts of novels. So she's letting the reader know that what you're embarking upon when you read about Alice Walker in her 20s or 30s 
it makes sense. And you understand when you get further in the book, it's all connected. Your writings and your life are intertwined. That should shock no one. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, because, I mean, I, I exist. I mean, and what else do I have but myself, really, you know? Uh, and so, you know, the creativity is true, is a miracle. So in a way, you don't know where a lot of it comes from. But it has chosen you as the conduit. And so there is a connection right there. She gives the reader footnotes, just enough background or insight so they can understand some of these entries. When you go back and you read these entries, or do you? I should ask that first and not just assume that you do. Do you go often go back and reread your entries from these journals from 1965 or even further? Not really, no. Uh, you know, there's, I'm still writing. I have a blog I write on and publish you know, very often. Uh, so I'm not so much concerned with the things that are already done. Uh, I'm very much concerned with current political realities like Ukraine, for instance. Um, but, you know, I, I relate to it. And what I like about, about any journal is that you can watch yourself develop and you can also, um, you know, really get to know your fears, you know, and what's holding you back. What's keeping you silent when you really know you need to speak? What is that? And in journaling, you can find out because there's nobody judging you. It's just you and your, your journal. And you just go through the, you know, the weeks and the months and sometimes the years and dig it out. Find out what's holding you down. I feel like I'm getting a master class here. Um, Thank you. No, I mean that. Mm -hmm. Listeners should know that you have way more journals and entries. Will we get to read perhaps another volume? Well, I don't know, because Valerie is gone. And I am not so happy that she had to leave yeah. um, because I trusted her so completely. Um, but, yeah, I have to say, I, you know, I have never stopped journaling. I have tons of journals that have never been transcribed. Um, it's a way to make sense of the world and our relationship with it. Uh, and it's also assuming my, uh, my, my position here as an elder in our community where we need to know certain things without a lot of varnish. And, uh, and we need to be able to understand that you know, women have always, men and women, but in this case, women have always found a way to be happy, that it's not impossible, you know, and that you don't have to settle for bad choices. I mean, all kinds of things. And you can see that if you keep a journal in your own life, you can see, oh, I didn't have to do that. I can do something else. And you can hear the entire conversation with Alice Walker online at WABE.org, as well as a link to watch tonight's conversation with Pearl Clegg. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. There's a new initiative happening out of Rockdale County, and its goal is to help those formerly incarcerated who have struggled or might have struggled with mental health conditions as they re-enter their communities. And I'm joined now by Bill Carruthers. He's with Opening Doors to Recovery. Bill is a certified psychiatric rehabilitation practitioner and certified peer specialist for mental health addictive disease, and whole health. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it, Bill. Well, thank you for having me. The privilege is mine. You know, often I think when we, we hear about folks who are re-entering society, which is the phrasing that they, that they use, do people understand that there's also a need? We talk about maybe education resources. We talk about, you know, obviously employment. But mental health, that often gets... That's not on the, the top priority list there, huh? You're, you're absolutely right. And just the complexity of mental health is something that uh, sometimes our system, sometimes people, I, it's, it's just a really big picture because the cultural agility that it takes to understand someone who has been embedded in the subculture for an extended period of time and is now trying to reintegrate into society with 
no telling how what number what number of years has taken place between those transitions and how overwhelming that is to a person who perhaps has an extensive criminal history, a person who mm -hmm. basically is in survival mode and has that barrier of a criminal history, criminal mentality, possibly addictions and all those things. It is a it's a overwhelming conclusion. And Bill, for folks who may not be familiar, it's not likely, although there may be, because I want to be fair, but there's probably not a lot of resources while folks are serving time, while they are incarcerated, if they need mental health resources or, or access to treatment. Well, you know, the reality of that, different places have different options mm -hmm. and different concepts available. And, you know, in a perfect world, well, it would look different. But since we're not in a perfect world, um, there are just places that, um, you know, different systems, private systems versus state systems, and then resources, timing, space, and all those things start to dictate the kind of care and the levels of care that people get, which is one of the reasons why we over here on this side of the fence have taken the initiative to change the way we address those things. And with Rockdale County's Opening Doors to Recovery program, now this program was first introduced, I believe, about a decade ago in Georgia, but now this is available in Rockdale County. Take our listeners through how this will work. So um, these Opening Doors to Recovery project falls under the Stepping Up Initiative umbrella. So I guess I can give you a little history and sure. that'll probably help, help people understand. Stepping Up was a national initiative that is designed to reduce the number of people in jails that have mental health or substance use disorders or that look like us on the inside or the outside. So with that being said, here in Rockdale County, under the tutelage of Commissioner Doreen Williams, who way back in 2015 signed the resolution for Stepping Up, in uh, 2019, and she had a lot of community listening sessions and conversations to try to get insight and input. In 2019, they brought me on as the project developer, and we started to look at how do we change the way that people flow through this system. Mm -hmm. We looked at the sequential intercept map, which is everything from our community to the community on the other end. How do people enter into the systems, whether it's through crisis or et cetera, et cetera. And then how do they exit, whether it's probation, parole, or just straight exit. And we looked at that sequential intercept map. We brought all of the providers and members of the community together. And we had this big session that lasted mm -hmm. for like a week or so. Inside that, we came out with several things that needed to happen to address this thing systemically. And so with that opening doors to recovery, I mean, I'm sorry, with the Stepping Up Initiative, we came out with these initiatives, which all fall under it. A diversion center, which is a place where people can get those severe clinical needs met so that when people encounter law enforcement and they are in mental health or substance use crisis, mm -hmm. instead of going to jail anyway, we we're going to create a clinical facility that can address those needs and change the direction of where people flow. Also, there was we came up with establishing a place called Grit and Grace, which is a recovery community organization or addictive disease recovery center. This is a place that is designed by people in recovery mm -hmm. where it's like a, a sort of like a clubhouse where people can come, we can have 12 step meetings, people can learn, the college can come and do classes so people can get uh, employment, working, living wages, that type of thing. People can find their own tribe, uh, a place where, you know, because for me, I couldn't just become one. I couldn't read about one. I needed to see one if I was gonna be one. Mm -hmm. So that will be a place that does that. The Opening Doors to Recovery Project also falls under that umbrella. This is a partnership that we're having with Viewpoint Health, between Viewpoint Health, the counties and the jails, and we're going to go inside, meet people who are in jails, and transition them out mm -hmm. with a three-person intensive case management team that will be a clinician, a person in recovery, and a family member who is gonna partner with that person for at least a year to help them meet certain metrics and dynamics. Bill, that sounds great. 
the fact that you're going to have that three-member team. I know someone listening is saying, well, is this a pilot program? I imagine there is a, we know there's a need for this. Do you all have enough to meet the demand? So this is the thing. Actually, the and to the point that you made earlier, the pilot project for Opening Doors to Recovery took place back in 2013, 2011 to 2013. Opening Doors to Recovery pilot project was in North, uh, in South Georgia, and at that time, I happened to be the original navigator with the Opening Doors to Recovery project, which is why I knew it worked. And then they went ahead and had a randomized trial where they tested ODR against intensive case management, which is the service that fits, ODR would fit in the service milieu sure. right under ACT, which is assertive community treatment, which is the most intense treatment that you can get, and ICM, which is intensive case management, which is designated, the intensity is designated by the number of times that people actually engage the person. ODR being a three-person intensive case management team fits right in between those two. So you today ODR is an opening doors to recovery is an evidence-based practice. And so the funding was pulled down from the county and in partnership with the community service board because they figured out how to integrate Medicaid billing and the county subsidizes the money for the okay. what we can't bill for. So let me ask you this: is there are folks referred? Or can, can folks say, hey, I need this and I want to be a part of this? How will you be so able the to? Way, Go ahead. The, the way that's going to work is so there is a referral form, but we also have a, a, a very aggressive information sharing campaign. We actually do a radio show, nothing fancy like this. <laughs> I don't know about that, uh, Bill. <laughs> We just <laughs> so, but so, and, and this is the thing we also, and I didn't tell you about all the things that that the sure. Stepping Up Initiative was doing, but one of another component of the Stepping Up Initiative is we take recovery programs inside the jail. Mm -hmm. So we go into the jail and talk to the people in the jail about what is available for them to exit out of the jail. So at that time, that means all of the providers in our network will know about opening doors to recovery. The jail, all of their personnel will understand and be able to make those referrals. The judges and the courts understand and will be able to make those referrals. And people as well would be able to ask their public defender or whoever that is, hey, am I eligible for the opening doors to recovery project? Bill, this is more than just work you're doing. This is personal for you as well. Well, it's very personal because my name is Bill and I'm a person in long-term recovery. I think the operative portion of that statement is long-term. <laughs> what that means is that today I'm living the dream, but what that means is I took the wrong road, but I still ended up in the right place. Mm -hmm. Now, the longest part of that road, which was done in the dark, was 50 years. So that means for 50 years of my life, I was in active addiction, serious and persistent mental health that was unchecked, unmonitored, and pretty much a threat to everything I came into contact with. I've had many, many years of incarceration. And, and, you know, that's just who I was on the outside. On the inside, I was a, a, a human being that was totally unaware of how to do whatever was coming next. I was in survival mode. I was afraid, which may be dangerous. I would, I didn't know what to do. And people always say, well, you know better. Not really. I understand Because I that. was raised by wolves. Yeah. I understand. And Bill, let me ask you this. Had you had access to these mental health resources been provided or wraparound services, which we often call them, had you had access to these back then in that dark place, it would have made a world of a difference? It would have made a world of difference. And, and I know that everybody has their time sure. and everybody has their place and all that. But it's never too early and it's never too soon for us to have these interventions. The uh, Monday night or was it? Yeah. Monday night, I did a symposium here for young adults and, and brought juveniles and young adults in courts and 
law enforcement and principals and all those people in that room with a hundred young adults and just let them give us the business. Let them talk to us about the things that challenge them. I, I know that, you know, I grew up in an orphanage and I was raised by wolves. So I had, I didn't go to school. What do you mean? By the time- we running short on time, but when you say raised by wolves, can you just give a Take it a little bit further for us, Bill. So that basically what that means is... Um, I mean, I kind of know, but raised, I want you to talk about it. Yes, I, I was raised by people who were part of the subculture. The people who cared about me and loved me were people who were gambling, people who were stealing, people who were robbing, people who were drinking, people who were fighting and beating. And they taught me how to become. Gotcha. And, and, and so I became that. And, and a lot of people would say, well, you knew better. I didn't know better. I understand that. Let me ask you this, Bill. We got about a minute left. For folks, our listeners who want to find out more information about the Opening Doors to Recovery program and out in Rockdale County, where can they go to get this information? So you can get that information. You can reach out to us at odr at bphealth.org. You can reach out to us at gridandgracerco.gmail.com. Gotcha. Um, You can reach out to Commissioner Doreen Williams, who is the tip of the spear. Um, You can go on our website to the Stepping Up Initiative, Rockdale Stepping Up, and there's some information there, connection tabs. You can find out about the jail curriculum, all those things that we're doing over here. And we'll have a link to all of that. Bill Carruthers, talking about Rockdale County's Opening Doors to Recovery Program. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for sharing your story. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you very much. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, you can always let me know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And of course, you can catch a rebroadcast tonight at 7 p.m. and in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.